Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 52. Hello, my beautiful friends, and welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast as we round out the month of May and Mental Health Awareness Month. So today, let's continue the conversation around plants as medicine with a discussion about the gut microbiome and the new field of culinary medicine. But first, if you've been enjoying these episodes with my incredible guests, please take a moment to leave a five-star review with a few words about how this podcast has helped you. Your reviews are the most important thing to help this show grow and reach more people who need this information. There's a link in the show notes, and I would be so grateful for your support in helping me with my mission of helping more people take back their health using Ayurveda and other integrated medicine. As I said, today we're continuing the conversation around plants as medicine, with a discussion about the gut microbiome and its role in brain health and mental health and the new field of culinary medicine with another incredible guest, Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu has been described as a triple threat, which she absolutely is, as she's a board-certified psychiatrist, nutritionist, and a professional chef who went to culinary school. She is the Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and a leading voice in the fields of nutritional psychiatry and culinary medicine. Dr. Naidu is also the author of the national best-selling book, This Is Your Brain on Food, in which she dives into cutting-edge science to explain the ways in which food contributes to our mental health and how a sound diet can help to treat and prevent a wide range of psychological and cognitive health issues, from ADHD to anxiety, depression, OCD, and many others. In our conversation, Uma and I talk about what the microbiome is, like what is it exactly, how it works, and its connection to brain health and mental health. We also discuss which foods disrupt the microbiome and which foods support the gut microbiome and how to turn our kitchens into food pharmacies where we can practice culinary medicine. We also discuss how to use food to support brain health for cognitive function, everything from brain fog to memory issues to dementia and Alzheimer's. I'm honored to share this conversation with you with Dr. Uma Naidu about the gut microbiome and using plants as medicine. Uma, it is so lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for making the time to be here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Yvette. It's great to be here. Yeah, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. You know, your episode is during Mental Health Awareness Month, and which is very, very fitting because you are a nutritional psychiatrist. You have a very interesting background. I've read your book and been following you for a while. You know, you're a board certified psychiatrist. 
you're a certified nutritionist and you're a professional chef. And so I'm really curious, how did that happen? Which training came first? What led you to go to culinary school? I mean, that's a lot of training. So tell us about that. Sure. I think it you know, stems from my love uh, for food and nutrition. Um, just grew up in a family that ate healthy food. I don't think I realized that at the time. I spent a lot of time in my childhood days with my maternal grandmother, to whom my book is dedicated because my mom is a double-boarded physician. She was in medical school at the time. So during the day, I would hang out with my grandma and would just watch her naturally prepare healthy meals, pick vegetables from the garden, um, eat together, have a sense of community, but also learn things like yoga and meditation from my grandparents who wanted to entertain me during the day. Right? So I, I went to mental health training with that idea. And early on in my training, recognized there were two two big aha moments. One came early when I was able to interpret information back to a patient and realized how valuable it was. You know, he came in uh, with a very large cup of coffee in his hand, but he was complaining about weight gain from a medication that I had just started prescribing. A, I knew it wasn't the medication, and B, he had already was overweight just from the data on his in his medical record. Um, and I was able to ask him questions about this 20-ounce uh, large cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And when he understood the number of empty calories, quarter cup of ultra-processed creamer, eight teaspoons of sugar that he was consuming mindlessly every day, he was, you know, his eyes lit up and he felt he can make an, he could make an action step. And that to me was a very big aha moment because I realized the power of someone understanding how they could make a change and that it was really valuable. You know, I also felt things like mindfulness, meditation, just a holistic and integrated approach were missing in mental health. So, so I continued to ask questions about this type of thing. I went to culinary school. I still actually don't know how I fitted in those number of hours during my <laughs> training, but but I did it because I, I love cooking and food and really wanted to fulfill that in my life. Um, and Julie Child had been a food hero because I came to cooking later on because having coming from a large family, um, everyone else cooked, my aunts, my, my older cousins, my mom, my grandmother. So I, I learned how to bake because I loved science. So, you know, jo Julia Child was sort of the, the person on uh, free public television in Boston whom I would watch all the time. They gave me a sense of confidence and really made me feel, you know, this was her second career. That's the one for which she is known. Anyway, um, to, to wrap, wrap it all up in a nutshell, I, I followed things that I love to do. I was very fortunate that by following those interests, they did come together in my work um, from a very central point of how I grew up. And I think that when you make the connection between food and mood, for example, to someone, and you can then share with them something simple, even in a recipe that they can do, it makes it very valuable to them and, right. and easy to understand. Absolutely. So you were doing all of these trainings together. So you were in your medical training and in culinary school at the same time? Uh, so I'd finished medical school, but it was in, uh, early on in my residency. Uh, sorry, just after residency, early on as an attending. Mm -hmm. I went to culinary school. So. Wow, amazing! Yeah. So it, I, I, you know, <laughs> it was a lot, of, a lot of hours, but but it was it was fun. Yeah, and so it was really following those passions, but then sort of the connections that you were making as you were seeing patients clinically, of saying, "Oh, 
if I can explain the connection between what's going on for them with mental health challenges, mental health in general to their diet, and then show them what to do to improve their diet, there's something there. That's correct. It, you know, it's, it's, there's something there because they feel they can take an action step. Mm -hmm. They feel that they can understand something related to food. Um, and it's something that they've overlooked. You know, how many times do we take a, a headache pill? What do we do? We, we swallow it. We drink, drink a little bit of water and we don't think about it. Right. Where's it acting? You know, it's going through your digestive system, but it's acting in your brain. So, you know, when you start to unpack it for people, they start to really put those pieces together and realize how important nutrition can be as a synergistic method to feel better, along right. with any medications they may or may not be taking, um, along with what I consider very valuable, which is the different forms of therapy as well. Yeah. Amazing. And so, you know, in your book, This Is Your Brain on Food, which is you know, been a bestseller since it came out. It's, it's an amazing book. You know, you talk about the connection between our gut, our brain, and then our plate. So I'd love to break that down a little bit and really get into, you know, what is this connection between the gut and the brain, specifically the gut microbiome? So let's break it down for my listeners so they can really understand, because I think, you know, especially during this month of mental health awareness, there's a lot of talk about the gut microbiome, the gut brain, all of these things. And these terms are thrown around, but like, what does that actually really mean? Let's, let's start there. I think that's a great question. So the, if you think about the gut itself, the gut is part of the digestive tract and neuroscience in the last two decades has shown us that uh, there are about 39 odd trillion microbes that live in the gut. When we talk about the genetic material associated with them, we call it the gut microbiome. So these microbes live in the gut. There are five different types. Most studied are bacteria. That's why we tend to talk about them more often. But the gut and the brain are also connected. And these are organs that are far apart in the body. We wouldn't think that they're connected. But they actually arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo. They divide up to form these two organs. And then they remain connected throughout life by a text messaging system, which I like to call the vagus nerve. Love it. Um, the vagus nerve is, uh, you know, the wandering nerve in the body, and it allows for bidirectional uh, text messages between these two organ systems all the time. Mm -hmm. So they are communicating, but then there's more information. We now know that about 90% of serotonin and the serotonin receptors are in the gut. Serotonin is the happiness hormone. It's the reason that people are prescribed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or SSRIs, and there are several others as well. So these two organ systems are communicating, and when we eat, we eat either some healthy meals and the breakdown products of those that impact those gut microbes in a positive way. If we are going through the fast food lane every single day, and that's what we're eating, then the bad microbes in the in the gut microbiome, uh, they begin to thrive. So added sugars, and if you're eating kind of candy and cake all the time, those microbes thrive. And when they thrive, the breakdown products of digestion are toxic. And those toxic products start to damage a single cell lining of the gut. So that's where you develop conditions like leaky gut over time. And so you want to think about it as an ecosystem that is really there to help help us 
uh, with many different conditions because those gut microbes also deal with vitamin production, sleep and circadian rhythm, which is your internal body clock, um, uh, uh, immunity, you know, uh, hormone production. They deal with so many different things and also help mental health. So you want to, you know, consider the gut microbiome and the gut microbes a part of functioning well. So you want to feed them with healthy foods. Right. Okay. And so, so what you're saying, if I can recap a little bit, is that, you know, the, the brain and the gut, they come from the same embryonic structures and divide, divide, divide. That's why they're connected, you know, um, structurally, physiologically. But then what you're saying about the gut microbiome is that there are these bacteria that live in our gut that actually help us, right. That basically, um, sustain the gut lining to produce things that we need for our yes. brain to function correctly. Yes. Yes. Right. All of that is correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the food that we eat can either support that microbiome or disrupt it. That's right. Right. So basically that's how the gut microbiome is so connected. And that's why it's so important is what you're saying. It's super important because those microbes are dealing not just with mental health, they're dealing with pretty much all the systems in our body. Mm -hmm. What's newer that we've understood is that these microbes are so closely involved in our mental health function. And, uh, you know, we want to we take care of them for, for all good reasons. Right. And so let's talk a little bit more maybe about the, the gut mi microbiome and sort of what are some of the components of that microbiome that um, that have been studied, that we're seeing there's a connection between either mental health challenges or any other challenges? What are some of the, the, the science there? Right. So one of the conditions, we talked about the good microbes and the bad microbes, and we talked about how they can be nurtured or, or, or fed with uh, more negative products that break mm -hmm. down. When, when you get a buildup of those negative products, bad microbes are thriving. Um, they create more toxic uh, breakdown products. They damage the single cell lining. And that's when you get conditions like leaky gut develop over time, but that's also called intestinal permeability. What's also happening in the gut is there becomes this imbalance of good and bad microbes, and that is called dysbiosis. Through the process of dysbiosis, a lot of things can happen. I have seen in individuals, and remember, this is not immediate, although microbes respond, bacteria and microbes respond within two hours to, to food, to stress, to many different things. You don't necessarily see those changes immediately. Mm -hmm. But what I have seen in mental health is an uptick of anxiety, a worsening of depression, new onset of symptoms, um, as someone has a more and more, uh, more dysbiosis in their gut. It can also, however, show up as skin conditions. Um, headaches and different different things in your body. So it's not just gastrointestinal discomfort that you may have, like gas, bloating, diarrhea, pain. Mm -hmm. um, you might actually have a, a, have a symptom elsewhere in your body, and you don't think about the fact that it's connected. So you, I, the more and more that I'm studying the gut microbiome, the more I feel like it's it's almost like a central um, area of the body. So the brain is brain, of course. Can, controls everything. But the gut is really considered the second brain because of the number of nerves um, in the enteric nervous system that, that's rounded and that work there. And, and the more I think about it and, and learn about it, 
more I see how it is involved in so much in our body. Yeah. Especially our mental health. Yeah. And so it's so interesting, you know, we're both South Asian. And so it, it, it goes back to Ayurveda, right? That the digestion was always the central uh, aspect. And that is where we always start is with the digestion. So we knew this somehow many, many thousands of years ago. Ayurveda has known it. Um, Hippocrates knew that there's a connection. Mm-hmm. This, the, the sort of, I suppose, the Western-based research had to follow. And, yes. um, you know, I, I feel like many individuals who either practice Ayurveda who, or who have really paid attention even to digestion. Um, or, you know, growing up, my grandmother would always talk about spices and what mm-hmm. she would be adding somewhere and this medicinal benefit that her mother had told her and her great aunts had taught her. And, you know, I would eat it and happily enjoy something. But now I've, of course, understood the scientific value behind that. that there's actual uh, real real data now to right. say, you know, there's a reason ginger is what it is or turmeric is the way it right. is. And so why do you think, this is just a maybe more philosophical question to ask, is that, you know, if we knew this and Hippocrates knew this, right, the father of medicine, as we would say. Right. Why did we get so far away from that? You know, in our training, the time that you and I probably trained, we weren't taught anything about nutrition in medical school, right? We had to go and look for the information. Why did we get so far from this, do you think? I feel that certainly in the United States, certain things happen. There's the industrialization of food, Mm -hmm. Um, farming and agriculture changed. Uh, people wanted their lives to be more convenient. So when things like the microwave were invented or frozen dinners, these became conveniences for busy families, busy women, um, women joined the workforce. So many things changed and evolved, and and I'm not necessarily giving it in the correct time sequence, but they all impacted different things. Sure. But, you know, the food industry is, is, the food industry is there to make money. Mm -hmm. They're not there to take care of our health. And right. I think that by the food labeling and what we know is done to processed and packaged food, you know, there, there isn't much emphasis, even even though I will say a lot of the large companies have extensive research and development arms who do now pay attention to more wellness-based criteria and more nutritionally-based criteria. For the most part, you know, things like high fructose corn syrup were added to food. Mm-hmm. Things like um, low fat became a huge craze. And we now understand that was actually very bad for our health. Right. So even though out of sequence, many different things happened over time. And industrialization really changed the food system. Now, how do we walk ourselves back from that? Mm-hmm. Right where we are reliant on convenience. We have learned what fast foods are. Other parts of the world crave being like the United Mm -hmm. States. So they love fast food. And so the obesity epidemics in children in China uh, and things like that. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to know where and when things really almost fell, fell off and changed so much. But I think we have to find our way back. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic, surprisingly, for some people, was a way to do that. Yes. For others, it has been harder. So everyone has had challenges in different ways. But where I'm at with this is I feel that, you know, I'm here to change our conversation around our relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it speaks to exactly what you said. If we don't do this for ourselves now, and it doesn't mean we have to eat a healthy meal every single 
minute of every single day because it's really not on the it's really not about what you have on your plate today or the number on your scale tomorrow it's about this ongoing experience and relationship with a healthier lifestyle and one of those biggest factors one of the biggest factors in lifestyle is nutrition we know nutrition impacts most if not all of the major diseases and leads to death um, from chronic illness right. especially and one of the things we can actually change and adjust is how we eat mm-hmm. so I feel it's a low-hanging fruit for people if we just think about it more deeply and we start to pay attention. But right. I guess it's you know it requires for someone to be open to that too. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with everything that you said. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's so multifaceted because there's the the food industry, our food system, but then on the other side there's the medical system, right? And sort of I think what I what I'm getting at is, you know, what went wrong in the medical system as far as how we were trained and getting away from this understanding that food and the digestion is so important, even though we may not have had the science, we had the ancestral knowledge that this, that this was true. And so it's just, it's sort of like, where did we go wrong where we went so far off the path that we weren't taught about nutrition in medical school? Yeah. Part of an advocacy group uh, through the Harvard Tate School of uh, Public Health and um, through the Department of Nutrition at Harvard, where I'm faculty as well. And that's a, what, what we're exactly trying to address, Avanti, is that you know medical education needs to include nutrition education. Yeah. The two cannot be separated anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a slow and, slow and steady uphill battle. But you know we have small wins now and again, and that's you know, there are only a very few medical schools who even include nutrition now. Some are better than others. But research, as you know, has been written about the gap. And um, I'm not sure where we went wrong. Maybe we got so highly specialized in the different organ systems, but we kind of left out nutrition, which kind of relates to all the organ systems. (laughs) It's sort of, it's kind of interesting to me. So, and and also I think that, um, you know, one of the things I talk about is sort of medicines being so siloed. It's not that doctors don't communicate. It's that the organ systems are so siloed. Right. So, you know, we, we efficient at communicating as part of our training, but we often don't really think sometimes of an integrated and holistic approach. And really, I feel like the way that I work in mental health has been based on my my cultural heritage, how I was raised, how I was raised to think. Mm -hmm. And so it was always important to me, you know, I I will say simple things to to individuals and they, some, some grasp it and some don't, you know, having a sense of community, eating with your family, sitting down to eat, being mindful when you eat, shutting the television off, right. not having your phone buzzing. You know, while there, there are days I have that going on in my life, I know it's not ideal and I try more often than not to move towards that healthier norm because it's not just the food on the plate, right? Yeah. It's, it's everything that surrounds that because that helps. We know that when we are less stressed, we eat healthier. Uh, but when we're more stressed, we make those unfortunate choices because right. stress, ha- stress precipitates habit circuits in the brain. So it's all of this. It's all of those things. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate you indulging me in that difficult question because there's not an easy answer, but it's just, you know, interesting to think about. I would love to talk a little bit about 
some of the issues that you see beyond the mood issues. So let's talk about, you know, brain fog, memory, Alzheimer's, dementia. I know that you've written quite a bit about this articles that I've seen online because as I was doing research on sort of your work and reading in your book, I think that that's something that many people are worried about, especially as we're seeing more and more people, you know, dealing with Alzheimer's in their families and their elders. You know, I have a mother-in-law who has Alzheimer's now and she was a physician and it's quite advanced and it's very difficult to watch her go through this, but then I can see the effects upon my husband and, you know, his younger brother and how they're so worried about it. So let's talk about, you know, what are some of the connections between, you know, gut health and then brain health as it relates to some of these memory and brain fog types of issues? I think the conversation in Alzheimer's where that needs to change in relation to food is the fact that we think of Alzheimer's and cognitive disorders as a disease of our parents, our grandparents, our mother-in-laws, our Mm -hmm. aunts and uncles, when in fact there are subtle brain changes that occur very early on, which may or may not lead to Alzheimer's or cognitive disorders. Mm -hmm. But those brain changes early on can be reversed by how we eat and our lifestyle factors. So neuroinflammation gets set up. And the one thing we can do with neuroinflammation is change how we're eating. So that's a powerful thing to know. That, of course, does not exclude the fact that we don't have a cure or that we, um, we, we, we know and we research every single day more and more that we can about Alzheimer's. But the one thing that is remediable is something that impacts inflammation, and that can be done through our food. So it's an easy, um, an easy hack, really, to start to eat healthier from an early age because we don't know that we can reverse some changes that may not end up as, you know, members of my family or, or your family um, have. So that's, a, that's the first thing, to realize that we have some tools right in front of us. Uh, we don't even have to get fancy. We just have to kind of clean up our eating a little bit and start to think about it more. But things like exercise become important mindfulness become important, outdoor time become important. So I want, I want people to start thinking about Alzheimer's and cognitive disorders as something we're dealing with from whatever age we're at. And an important factor that, that is remediable is cutting back on those processed, ultra-processed junk foods, the highly sugared foods, the sugar-sweetened beverages, the processed vegetable oils, the artificial sweeteners, the stuff that we know is impacting ultimately our brain cells. Sugar is one of one of the biggest issues. Um, then when it comes to conditions like brain fog, and brain fog is actually a very big part of what we're dealing with right now with the number of individuals who've developed long hauler syndrome. Yes. We also know that the there's an increased rate of mental health conditions often newly diagnosed in those patients. So brain fog is is huge. Well it turns out that you know there are certain foods that are rich in an antioxidant called luteolin that can actually help brain fog. And they are contained in um, things like certain herbs, parsley, thyme, um, and, and s- several other things. But how about we think about dealing with brain fog in a different way? You know, can we eat differently? Can we add different spices to, to how we are cooking to help reduce the brain fog? Um, and so it's, it's just, you know, anti-inflammatory foods, 
um, foods that are rich in antioxidants and uh, you know polyphenols, plant-rich diets. Um, I have to quote you know uh, the studies of the blue zones because they have so many factors that they've associated with longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the individuals who are older in those populations are also healthy. They're healthy physically and they have healthy minds. So, you know, they, they've, they've uh, brought a lot forward in this space as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's such an important point that you made is that, you know, this is not something to start thinking about when you're in your 40s and 50s, but to actually think about it for your children when they're younger and you know, they're teens and even younger, but, you know, I have two college age kids. And so to really help them understand how inflammation in the body is also inflammation in the brain. I think that sometimes we forget that, that these two things are connected and that, you know, we're so focused on inflammation in the body that we forget that brain inflammation causes so many of these cognitive and mood disorders and symptoms that come up. That's right. And that was the reason to bring forth my book and my research and work in nutritional psychiatry, because, you know, that the connection between the gut and the brain and mental health is less known. And the impact of uh, when people think about inflammation, they often think, well, they, they do need to know it's a healthy process that protects the body. So right. if you fall and scrape, you scrape your leg, you know, inflammation is there to help heal. Right. But we're talking about chronic and insidious inflammation things brought on by stress and diet is one of the big factors. Um, People don't make the connection, just like they don't make a connection and they take a headache pull. They don't make a connection that inflammation is also connected in different parts of the body. Um, And, you know, I've seen individuals who may have mental health symptoms and a skin rash. And, you know, over time, by helping to reduce inflammation, we know that we can help our guts heal and sort of get to a better place in 28 days, depending on the severity of your dysbiosis. Yes. It can be different for each person, but we know it takes about that time. But if they consistently do that, I've, I've seen individuals over time improve with skin rashes along with mental health symptoms. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's connected. Everything is, yeah. is it, we need to think about it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a beautiful point to bring up that, you know, again, you can add some of these things into your diet that are anti-inflammatory, antioxidant to help with your brain health, to help with your mood, help with the dysbiosis that's going on in your gut. And it's all going to help not only your cognitive function and your mood, but also these other issues that you might be having. And so it's like, I mean, it's sort of in a way, the miracle cure to help with so many different things is what's on our plate, right? It's much more powerful. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. And it's powerful not only to say it in that way, but I think it's powerful because, as you said before, it gives patients, it gives people something to work with. It gives them something that they can say, okay, I can take this back in my hands and I can do something, right? I can actually do something that's going to help my health. I may not know exactly how it's going to work but I know it's going to start to shift things. You know, you mentioned 28 days. So, you know, you are in clinical practice and you've been seeing thousands of patients probably by now. How long does it usually take for something, a plan where you are shifting your diet and your dietary practice? How long does it take to start seeing some effects? So I've had, I've had people have different responses. And part of this Mm -hmm. is also based on the fact that the 
microbiome is like a thumbprint, right? So it's different for each individual. Yes. So more and more in my practice, Vanti, from, from more generalized plans, I've really moved into many, much more precision medicine and sort of individualized mm-hmm. nutritional psychiatry plans. A general guidance, though, is I'll have people contacting me up within a week saying, I'm starting to feel better. Wow. I've, I've made these changes and these few changes, and I'm really starting to notice I'm either sleeping better or my mm. digestion is getting mm. better or I'm feeling less foggy. Mm. And this, but it also, but in general, it's a, it usually I, I feel comfortable saying within three weeks to a month you're starting to really gain traction with the changes because these are not this is not the the headache pull that works in ten minutes right or twenty right. minutes. This does take time. It's, um, that's why, you know, I say to people, if it's your birthday and you want a piece of cake, it's okay. I just don't want you eating that piece of cake every single day because that's when the piece of cake becomes your lifestyle habit versus the opposite, right? The the healthier habits becoming your everyday life. Um, so I've, I've, I've had a varied number of, uh, responses, but some people, um, within you know week to ten days, start to do well or notice changes. I should say, but usually, they those changes really start to impact their condition within two weeks to a month. That's amazing. I mean, even for you to say that, yeah, it may not be as fast as a headache pill that you take, and you know, an hour later you're feeling better. But for something to be able to shift how you are feeling in two to four weeks is pretty incredible. I just want to sort of like click into that and highlight that, that that is an incredible response. And that's very, very powerful and very doable. You know, we can do anything for two weeks. We can do anything for two weeks. And what happens is the more that our bodies get used to it, and I mentioned those individuals who called and contact me within a week, that's when the, uh, when the momentum sets. Yes. In, people want to do more. Right. So you know, I try to give people short steps that they, short, small steps that are actionable and then build upon that. Right. Um, also, I think what's important to frame this for people is, you know, we are dealing with um, conditions like depression, anxiety, we want to improve cognition, all the different symptoms in mental health. But, you know, individuals who are severely depressed, suicidal, manic, um, losing touch with reality, they might need acute care first. Of course, of course, nutrition can be helpful, but when they're that sick, they may actually need even hospitalization first. Mm-hmm. But once they realize that you know changing how they eat can also support anything else that they're doing, it's yes. a very powerful tool. Yes. But when people are functioning otherwise, but wanting to feel better, which has happened a lot during the pandemic. Yes. You know, not everyone has been able to access a therapist or psychiatrist, but they're not feeling great or they're feeling anxious. They can't sleep mm-hmm. so much so that, you know, insomnia is being called coronasomnia. So these are, this is where these tools can be really right. powerful to right. help you feel better. Yeah, I know. And the listeners can't see you, but there's a huge smile <laughs> on your face as we're talking about the power of seeing these changes in patients within two to four weeks. There's nothing more gratifying as, as, a, as a practitioner than to see the transformation that happens um, for patients, you know, and how they feel so empowered. So I really, I really love that. And your smile is huge. So um, (laughs) I know that you're really, that's why you're doing the work that you're doing. Okay, so let's move into 
this connection between the brain and the plate, right? And so, you know, there's this whole new field, nutritional psychiatry, but then also culinary medicine. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, what's going on in medical schools and medical training and you're a trained chef. So what's your perspective on this idea of culinary medicine? I think it's great. Um, you know, I write a column um, on culinary medicine for the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. And mm -hmm. um, I, I, I love it. I mean, I think that uh, the more that we can educate, learn, empower physicians, clinicians, and our patients, yes. um, the, the, the better our health can be. You know, we talked earlier on about how did we end up in this place? Well, you know, how, how can we, you know, if we reverse engineer that, we think, well, how can we walk ourselves back from this difficult sure. place of how we're eating? Um, you know, that these, the, these are some of the tools. I mean, I think that the educational component for me has become so extremely important in, in the work that I'm doing. Um, you know, just, just as an aside, I, I wasn't on social media. I think I may have had a Facebook account in my family, um, uh, cause my siblings are overseas, but I, um, you know, really went to social media because of the message of the book. Mm -hmm. And I use social media specifically, while it has its ups and downs, we use it specifically for education. And that's the only way that we can spread this message, right? Yeah. And change this conversation right. um, around food. You know, literally culinary medicine is this idea that you can cook your way out of illness, right? And cook your way towards health, which I think is so, again, very, very powerful. And so how can we, as you know, individuals who are listening, you know, myself and all the people who are listening to this podcast, how can we start to sort of turn our kitchens into a pharmacy and into a place where we can actually practice culinary medicine from your perspective with all the training you've had and the experience, what are some ways to get started? So, you know, if we were to put together these two areas, right? So nutritional psychiatry is really the nexus of your uh, your mental health and how nutrition can impact that. Culinary medicine is really creating those tools to help you towards your overall health. And I think the two are related. So it's, it's a beautiful thing because if it's another thing that COVID taught us um, was that our metabolic health is so important. And so many about a study showed that about 88% of Americans have some abnormal factor in terms of their metabolic health. So none of us is really perfect. And one way we can do it is to eat ourselves healthy. Um, so if you were to put those two arms together, one way, you know, chapter 11 of this is your brain on food, I talk about how to set up your kitchen. And I share that. I shared that because I went to cooking later in life, having been spoiled by a very wonderful family, mm -hmm. cooked many delicious meals. Me so well. I had to sort of start, start from scratch. And culinary school really helped the structure of that. Um, you know, you learn discipline, you really learn how to do things uh, in a way that is practical, efficient, with speed, but also, you know, you, you think about things like you don't want to waste food. So just thinking in those terms can be super helpful. And just what equipment you buy in your kitchen, you don't need a lot, you just need a few simple tools to get yourself going. So the more simple we can make this process, the more attainable it feels to any one of us. Um, simple things to start with is, you know, sort of change out the environment of what you have in your kitchen. If the pandemic has, um, you know, brought in a bunch of cookies to your, uh, to yeah. your kitchen cabinets or a ton of ice cream, you know, it's time to sort of walk ourselves back from that, right? 
I ask people to switch out what's in their kitchen cabinet, start to put in healthier options, uh, rethink what's in their fridge, start to cut back on sodas and diet sodas, start to move towards, you know, filtered uh, water, just plain water, add berries of citrus to to it. Uh, think about, you know, how are you going to organize your grocery shopping? Um, moving towards cleaner proteins, more produce, more plant-rich foods, um, all those fiber-rich foods, because fiber actually nurtures the gut microbes. So it's really important to lean into uh, vegetables, uh, berries, fruit, nuts, you know, seeds, uh, legumes, lentils, all of those foods. Mm-hmm. Um, think about what you have in your kitchen uh, cabinet or your table. You know, do you mm-hmm. have some nuts? But if you have nuts, have a little measuring, um, you know, quarter cup with it because nuts are delicious. We want to eat so many more. You know, do you, can you switch out the cookies for a bowl of fruit? Um, you know, can you keep clementines in the fridge because that's a juicy snack that the kids or just want, you know, someone can pick up if they're hungry. Um, and I love meal prep. I love meal prep and batch cooking. So if some of the meals during the week can be done ahead or prepped ahead, uh, efficiently, you your your dinner time, your lunch time is so much more smoother, mm-hmm. you know. So that that helps families as well. And those right. are really some steps towards you know moving down that food pharmacy path. Yeah. So it's really reorganizing your kitchen, rethinking your kitchen cabinets, your fridge. What what do you have on hand to be able to to make? Um, because you need some of those staples. And those things right. to be able to create mm-hmm. these foods, right? And so I think that's a great tip. And so I'm going to get it even more granular in particular. So from your perspective as a culinary chef, what would you say are three important kitchen skills that we should all really prioritize learning, practicing, maybe teaching to our children so that they can start to feel like they can cook? So one thing is... Um, having one simple thing is just having the right equipment right Mm -hmm. Uh, people don't realize that if you have a blunt knife you can actually injure yourself much more than having a sharp knife a clean chopping board and just some simple utensils to use so start with getting yourself set up or just you know clear the all of us have that in our kitchen clear out the pattern take out the pieces you're going to use. And if you have children who are old enough to safely use that, or you can supervise, have them get handy with these two. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing associated with is going to be preparation. So being thoughtful about a grocery list, buying lots of produce that the family participates in, colorful, the the greater the color uh, variety of your fruit and vegetables, the greater the biodiversity of what you're going to be feeding your gut. Um, so planning your grocery list, setting up your kitchen and in the grocery list, really thinking about the healthy foods that you want to increase, um, you know, for brain health, things like legumes, uh, dried or canned organic, um, you know, canned salmon, if you don't, don't want to buy fresh or it's maybe out of your budget, uh, becomes both th- those things become important. Really loading up on the produce and getting clean sources of protein. So if you're vegetarian, it could be tofu, lots of lentils and beans. Um, if you uh, consume meat, it's just you know if you can try to get organic grass-fed meats. Uh, you know, omega three pasture-raised eggs. If you consume eggs, the source of food becomes important. So set up your kitchen. Really pay attention to planning your grocery list out. Uh, think about really the source of your food uh, and 
you know, look at lists like the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen, which we post, mm -hmm. and they're from the EWG, and, you know, balance your budget in terms sure. of what you buy. And then the, the third skill I would say is that it's more of a, a, a almost like a, like a rethinking of something, which is if you're making something and you know it's deep fried in oil, what can you do? Well, you can make a crunchy zucchini chip in an air fryer oven. You know, you can you can um, add vegetables to your diet. You don't have to make it complicated. You can use frozen vegetables, which don't have added sauce syrups or sugar um, or salt in them, and steam them. You know, uh, in a glass bowl in the microwave or on the stovetop. Um, some people are concerned about microwaves, and it's pretty quick to steam them on on a stovetop. And it's a quick vegetable side for a large family or small family. Um, and you don't even have to do much to it. A squeeze of lemon and a pinch of salt are some of the best tips I learned in culinary school for sure. what they do to fla the flavor of food. Mm -hmm. um, another great tip is, you know, get a lemon zester and zest some lemon or citrus on those veggies. So, you know, three things to kind of set yourself up um, for success in the kitchen. Yeah, no, I think those are great tips. And I think you know, if I can add one, I think that learning proper knife skills is so important. I mean, I learned how to chop and, you know, all those things from my mother, but you know, she just learned the way she learned in India and that's very effective too. But I found that when I learned how to chop vegetables, cause I am vegetarian, it made it more fun <laughs> and it made it faster right. and understanding that I need a very sharp knife and all of these things it made it a lot more fun. And I think that's also something that's really important is to, to make cooking fun and to realize that this is medicine we're putting into our bodies three times mm -hmm. a day. And it's the most powerful medicine that we have and to make it enjoyable, I think just takes it to another level. It's funny because when I'm ever asked to present a webinar, I always end with the joy of food, you know, because it's great to talk about you know, rules about how we eat or things that are healthier, things that are less healthy. And I try to be less rule bound, but more lifestyle bound with mm -hmm. individuals. But, you know, I think that joy is a very important part of it, whether it's, you know, whether it's that you, um, you know, cracking eggs and making something with it, or whether you're chopping vegetables, whatever you, whatever you eat. If, if it's, if there's fun and you can find easy hacks to make this work, um, but the other thing not to not to ignore, we spoke about Ayurvedic practices, is the spices yes. are a huge uh, food pharmacy right in your kitchen. So adding those in and becoming a little bit more familiar. If you if, mm -hmm. if you come from a culture where you are less familiar with them, maybe just you know trying to play with them a little bit more and mm -hmm. add them in for their uh, brain and other health benefits is key. What are your top five spices that you would say are in your spice medicine cabinet? So my spice, my spice cabinet is way too big. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> and, it, it, and and I, I'm always trying to, because I'm always trying out new spices and new mixtures and, and blends uh, that I, that I, that I make on my own. Um, so let's see, I love turmeric with the pinch of black pepper. I love uh, chili powder because it's, it's central to certainly South Asian cooking and, mm -hmm. and having a little bit of spicy flavor, but not too hot. Um, I love, uh, you know, cumin. I love coriander because I sort of mix them up all the time. I would say the fifth one I would say would probably be ginger. Yeah. Even though in my kitchen, I tend to use those spi those fresh rather than powdered. Mm -hmm. always have, I live in the Northeast, so I always have 
the powdered versions as well. So yeah, and obviously that those spices they have health benefits, but they come from my heritage. Yes, you know there are tons of spices like rosemary, um, garlic, thyme, um, parsley, um, Mexican oregano, and so many others that just have. Yes tons of benefits to the body. So they do. you lean into all of those depending on what you feel like. Cooking. Yes. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, many of your favorites are mine also because I'm South Asian and grew up with those flavors. And so right. um, that's right. wonderful. Well, you've given us so many tips and the discussion about the microbiome, I think was just so incredibly helpful and so much knowledge there. And so this feels like a good place to end our time together. And so if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? To catalyze healing, pay attention to what's on your plate. You know, pay attention to what you're eating. Because it's it's sort of the theme of what we've spoken about today in terms of if we, we can pay attention and identify it, we can actually create a catalyst towards our better, better health. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uma, thank you so much for joining me. I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk with you. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember... With the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.